morning class, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. This is the first installment of our new class called The Reign of Life. We're going to study line by line, as it were, Romans 5 through 8. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these precious, precious saints. How you love them, how dear they are to you. And they are secure in the beloved, the Lord Jesus. I thank you for the appetite you've given them for the word of God. I thank you for their love for truth. I thank you for that work of the word in them to make them servants of Jesus, worshipers. Be pleased in our time together to use your word to ever shape us into his likeness, filling us with all confidence and hope and conviction and joy and peace. Do Do with your word, Lord Jesus, what it's intended. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Well, if you look at the handout, the first question I want to answer is, why are we calling our study the reign of life? The phrase comes from Romans 5, 17. Somebody read that for us. We'll make a few observations together. Somebody read Romans 5, 17. Who's got it? Great, wonderful. Uh, or if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the freedom of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Thank you. So there you have this allusion to reigning in life. Who are the uh, principal characters, the key players in this? We're going to make an equation out of this verse. Who are the key players? He's not so named, but who's the one man? Adam. Who is he contrasted with? Christ. Now, we're going to unpack this in much greater detail when we get here in Romans 5, 12 to 17. But for now, I'm telling you why this class is called the reign of life. What is the operative word describing the reign of Adam? Death. The operative word or words describing the reign of Christ? Life. What is impl- and and uh, how did death come into the world through one trespass? Anybody want to tell us what that was? Yeah, of disobeying God's command not to eat of that tree, even though Eve is the one who was first deceived. Adam, as the head of the human race, the representative head of the human race, God is holding accountable for it just as God is holding accountable the second head of a redeemed race, Jesus Christ, for his work. So through this one trespass, death entered, and death, what? It reigns. That's a horrible place to live under the reign of death. What is implied if, if, if death entered through one trespass, what is that implied things were like before that? A little bit of speculation against Joe Kathy. That there was life. There was life. And how do we know that, Joe Kathy? Um, I believe the Bible says it in Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, 1 and 2. It's very clear that the God of life, he's created everything to live, to brim. And what's the operative principle at the heart of that life? Who's at the center of it? God himself, the author of life. Obey me and you live. That's That's... That's how uh, life was designed. So, so how, um, how is death described here? 
Is there any specific description of it? Nate? It is in past tense. Okay. It rained. It doesn't say it is. Okay. And that rain has been interrupted by? Those, and those who are in Christ, what have they received? Abundance of grace. Abundance of grace. Anybody want that? Yes. And? The free gift of righteousness. Glory. Glory, glory. What, the question I was asking earlier, I'm so sorry, is what kind of death is being referred to here? Spiritual death? Define it for us, Nate. What is spiritual death? Romans um, described as being dead in sins. Okay. So your relationship with God is, uh, is dead. Unable and unwilling and unmoved to respond to God. Dead. We have as much appetite for God as a dead person has for food. And what other kind of death is alluded to here? Implicit. Physical, Physical death. I think we sort of saw through the series, the four-part series on death, God did not create a world that had death in it. Death is here because of sin. Well, we get a little ahead of ourselves, but I just want to point these things out. So we want to, we want to look at what Paul is going to unpack about this thing called the reign of life. And um, it basically goes from chapter 5 to chapter 8. Second question, unless you want to say more about this. I'm just telling you why we're calling it this. In other words, how do you get this abundance of grace? What, is the gift of, what difference does the gift of righteousness make in the life of somebody who's received it? How would you know you've received all of those good kinds of things? The relevance of our study. Next question to discuss together. What do we experience as we progress through the Christian life? So just out of curiosity, call out how many years you've been a Christian. Just tell me how many years you've been a Christian. 25. 25. Everybody, call out a number. I would say about 40. 40. 48. 48. So how many? 57. 57? Bob, you're old. <laughs> Anybody less, like, less than 25 years? Wow! Well, you, sorry? 13. 13? Okay, great. So, <clears throat> what do we experience as we progress in the Christian life? You are a class very qualified to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> you've, had, you've had plenty of time to think about it. The pressure is on. Pressure is on. What do we experience? I want to tease it out this way. And if I've missed one, let me know. What do we experience emotionally? What have you experienced emotionally as you progress in the Christian life? You look fabulous. What do we. A joke? Uh, times of growth and encouragement and then times of setback. Okay, encouragement. What do we experience emotionally? Okay. And what, what word would you annex to setback? How are you feeling? Um, discouragement. Discouragement, okay. How many of you have had times of discouragement in your, in your walk? Yeah, okay, good. Thank you. What else have you experienced emotionally? Charles? Joy? Gratitude? That's a 
that's a key word there, in my, uh, the word belong, because Paul uses that when in the beginning of Romans, the first paragraph of Romans, he writes to those who belong to Jesus. So my devotions over the weekend, I just teased out different, well, maybe you'll see it, but belonging, I belong to Jesus. That gives us joy. It gives us gratitude. What other emotion might we annex with that? Peace. Confidence. You would know a lot about that peace in the midst of trial, wouldn't you, Eileen? Confidence, the word literally means, confide, literally means, con, with, fide, faith, confidence is faith, it's a synonym for faith. Confident, how is it operative for you, Terry? Um, I know that I'm not a victim of circumstance, I belong to a sovereign God and and history is secure, and that gives me confidence to move forward. I, I have the freedom to fail. Good. And know that I'm loved. Good. Move on. Good. Fantastic. Does that uh, translate into your relationships? Is Rita f- free to fail in your relationship? Never. <laughs> <laughs> and then I digress. What other emotions have you experienced in the Christian walk? You're doing a great job teasing them out. Joan Kathy? Love. Okay. From? Because, because Christ loves me, I can pass that love on to others. Okay. And a God love. <clears throat> Wonderful. How about grief? And what would the ultimate, what would the, <clears throat> the, the, the most primary source of grief be for a growing Christian? Sorry? What would be the primary cause of grief for a growing Christian? The most weighty cause of grief? Your sin against the Lord. You don't give God the glory you increasingly sense He deserves. It grieves you. This is the Christian life, isn't it? Okay, as we grow. Alright, so good. Anger? Do you ever experience anger as a part of the Christian life? The best way to be, and the first person to be most angry at is? The devil and then yourself. Good. Where we go haywire is we get angry at others more so than ourselves. How about cognitively? What do we experience as we progress in the Christian life cognitively in terms of our thought? What do we experience? Okay, what, and what is that? What, how, how do you know that, Eileen? How do you know your thoughts are? You're having the mind of Christ. I can explain. Um, as I'm walking the path, I will often, the world will call me, but Christ will call me more. Good. So the ability to distinguish yes. truth from falsehood, lies from truth, deception versus truth. Deception versus truth. Good. Joe? Sense of awe. Sense of awe at um, God's creation, His <clears throat> purposes, His willingness to love sinners. Um. Good. Uh, Psalm 33. <clears throat> Let all the earth stand in awe of Him. What could be better? What could be more human? Before sin came in, was there awe in the garden? I mean, they saw with perfect clarity the glory of the Creator. The creation themselves in his image. Good. 
How many of you have experienced the profound satisfaction of the Christian worldview? Like it's deeply, intellectually satisfying. Yeah. This is what the Holy Spirit is pleased to produce as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you found a worldview that's more satisfying? If you do, you better believe it. But the, you grow as a Christian, you grow as a biblical worldview, no worldview matches this, does it? It's important to know because weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. You might hear that again in the sermon. Relationally, what happens as we experience Christian life? What happens relationally? <clears throat> Nate? <clears throat> you view relationships different. So before we may just have relationships based on various different things, but as we mature, we realize that people are either fellow believers who are in need of encouragement, or they're unbelievers that are in need of the gospel. Good. So what the nature of our relationship changes. Good. And what people need, and where they stand. Good. And that really affects how you relate to them. Right? I had this one pastor friend who said, I expect very little from believers and absolutely nothing from unbelievers. As it were. You know what I mean? <clears throat> the ultimate realism, as it were. Good. Anything else before we move on? Spiritually, what do you experience spiritually? Sort of hit on some of it. As you progress in the Christian life, greater intimacy with the Lord? Is it the same every day, the same intensity every day? No. Up and down. Right? How many of you would say that this morning you're feeling very, very close to the Lord? You don't have to raise hands. You, some of you, I know that people come to church <clears throat> not feeling close to the Lord. They come hurting. They say church is one of the loneliest places in the world. The singles which they were married, the married people which they were single. When I, when I prepare my sermons, I ask Jesus the Good Shepherd. As a rule, that you look, I, that's just, that's not always, the, <clears throat> I ask Jesus, I say, these are hurting sheep. They need your tender, shepherdly care. I want Jesus to love his sheep through, through, the, uh, through the message. How about physically? <clears throat> Do we experience anything physically over the, uh, our spiritual journey? <clears throat> John Kathy? I've actually seen my blood pressure come down after reading the Bible. I mean, that's a very real, very, very real physical manifestation. That's a great testimony. Should we expect that? We should. What is the antidote to truth, to to, (laughs) to anxiety, to fear? The truth. God, what a a blessing. Get the Bible uh, producers to get that and advertise with that. Buy our Bible, lower your blood pressure. <laughs> okay, let me, let me, you may have seen this diagram before. Am I good question? Please. Well, what category would the concept of um, seeing life as um, temporal, you know, not, not you know, it, it's, so you have a really eternal perspective. How, where would that fit? I think that's been dramatic for me. Uh, elaborate for us. Elaborate. Yeah, so, so to be able to go through life, it can affect our emotions, the way we think, the way we have relationships, just to kind of see life from, from an eternal perspective, knowing that we'll spend eternity with God, we'll be changed ourselves, um, the people we're with, talking to will be changed, and so this is short and momentary as, as Paul says. Good, good. And, and, and that's why you have all these categories here. Christianity is holistic. So if, if you have a person whose ultimate fear is dying, they're going to spend all their time and energy keeping themselves young. Right? If you have a person whose ultimate fear is loneliness, 
their, their whole life is going to be driven towards finding that relationship that will never let them down. And of course, what are we ultimately looking for in all these idols? We're ultimately looking for the Lord himself. The Lord himself. Let me propose a, a diagram for you that, that was very helpful to me to understand uh, the feel of Christian growth. And you, you may have seen it. I'm stealing it from Paul Miller, Jack Miller's son. And I got this in seminary. And that is that the Christian life feels messy. You begin the Christian life with an acknowledgement, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my sins. Right? Oh, isn't that wonderful? And at that point, you have no idea what. How big that cross is. Right? So what happens if you go as a Christian, you avail yourselves of the means of grace, sacrament, fellowship, I believe witnessing is a means of grace, the word of God, prayer. Two things become more and more exposed or revealed to you. On the one hand, the character of God, particularly his holiness, and on the other, the depth of your own sin. Both of those things are happening. You can't read the Bible with the Holy Spirit in your heart and not be convicted of your sin. You can't read the Bible with the Holy Spirit in your heart and not see more and more the character of God. So this, as it were, is the, is the ongoing crisis of the Christian. What am I going to do upon the discovery of my sin? And I see my sin in the light of what? It's always exposed by the light of the character of God. So I would encourage you, this is why daily Bible reading is essential, but also seeing Jesus in the Gospels. Not the only Jesus is in all the Bible, but he's in technicolor in the Gospels, isn't he? I need to be exposed to Jesus every day. The revelation of who Jesus is, because in, in light of that revelation, I see what? What I was made to be, what I'm not, and I see the glory of God you know, stand in awe of him. We have the word awe down here. So what happens is, what the million-dollar question is, as you're growing as a Christian, these two things are going to happen. Okay? It's like blinders on a horse. It just becomes more and more clear. Oh, the holiness of God. Oh, my own sin. The million-dollar question is, what are you going to do with that knowledge? What do you do? What are our human instincts to do about it? What? Sorry? Well, that's right. If, if all we look at is our sin, absolutely despair. Absolutely. A lot of Christians are profoundly discouraged. They say, I'm never going to change. There's no hope for me. This is awful. And, and rather than live with despair, they just lower the standards. Stop reading your Bible. Stop being confronted with how holy God is, right? Stop going to church. Go to a church that doesn't challenge you. That's one solution. Nate? I think it's helpful to clarify this that we're not actually growing in sin. We're, we're growing in understanding of what our sin is. And so we're actually growing in holiness as we get older. And so in this, we're understanding God's holiness. God's not getting more holy. We're just understanding it better. Yeah. We're really understanding our sin, but at the same time, we're not growing in it. We're becoming more and more holy. Yeah. And it's, that's true. And it's also true that that um, the, the, the warfare gets more intense with indwelling sin. And we'll unpack this as we move through Romans 7. But yeah, and this is growth. This is Christian growth. So, despair, 
Or, as the Puritans used to say, for every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. What happens is if, 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 if in your sanctification you're going back to your justification and looking at what Jesus has done for you, you realize the only solution between your sin and the holiness of God is the cross. The cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I'll ask you, those of you who've walked with the Lord for 25, 40 years, is your estimation of the value of the cross larger today than it was 15, 20, 25 years ago? Yes, it is. You know, you sing, sing Amazing Grace when you first get converted, the same wretch like me. Yeah, that's right. Sing it 25 years later, the same wretch like me. Right, okay. So, th- th- this, um, it's easy to short circuit this, and, and I just want to point out that if, if, if growing as a Christian, you experience some despair, frustration, grief, it's because a monster has now uh, been set loose in you. Basically, we're going to see from this study that there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God, and you don't know either. And those who, through Jesus Christ, are at peace with God and correspondingly at war with sin. So if you're in Christ, you woke up this morning and indwelling sin is at war with you. So is the devil. That's a hard place to live. It's far harder, far harder to be a believer than not, right? It's easy to be at peace with sin. It's all we've ever known. This is a struggle. It's a fight. And this is one of the reasons why we're doing this study is Paul gives us so much help in the midst of it. Okay, I'm just going to push pause here. We're going to move on. Anything else to say about this? The next set of questions is actually, actually might tease out some more of this. So let's go down to what questions arise as we grow in faith. Why would I list the question, can I be assured of God's love, can I lose my salvation? Why would I raise that question here? And it is a question that you end up having, having as a growing Christian. Why does that come up? Because of... You're becoming more and more acquainted with the depth of your depravity. You just see the ugliness the heinousness of your pride, your selfishness. I was just thinking this morning in, in my prayer time how when I was younger and Janice was, had the three little ones, I was running off on Sunday afternoons to play football with guys in church, just abandoning my wife and grieving over that. Just So like, oh, you're just discovering that now, Mike? You know. But anyway, the, the, the discovery of selfishness in our hearts, it's like Hey, you're just converted. Get used to it. You haven't seen anything yet. You're discovering this is going to get harder and harder and harder. And so you wonder, in light of who I am, does God really love me? This is why the saints need to be encouraged week in and week out, day in and day out. He loves you, not based on what you do, but based on what Jesus did. That's why we need the gospel every day. Mike, I Joe. I kind of have a big one here. I know I thought a lot about it. I was actually from the religious background I came from. Um, some of this would have to do also with our theological understanding about God and the nature of Him calling and it being His work moving to us and not us towards Him. Good. And so, in other words, God, I'm, I'm in this because you called me to yourself. I would never be struggling with sin if it weren't for your grace. So you're reminding yourself, you're actually going back past your conversion to what? 
What doctrine? Election. <laughs> I'd never be struggling with sin. If, I'd never have spiritual appetites. I'd never have religious affection in my heart. But for the grace of God. You wouldn't be here but for God's drawing, right? The appetite that you have in you for the truth, for the word of God, to, to attend 30 to go worship, that's from God. It's all from God. And, and I think we rest confidently with joy and confidence and awe in that doctrine. Right? We'd never be interested in Jesus if it weren't for God drawing you to himself, opening your eyes, giving you a new heart. Yay! So we can say I'm a big sinner with a smile on our faces. You know, grief on the one hand. <sighs> Jesus loves to save big sinners. In fact, those are the only kinds of people he can save. Big sinners. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who know they're big sinners and those who don't. We could tease that out some more. What's the next question? Does the assurance of salvation produce sloth in spiritual matters? So here you go. Joe just said, as he discovers his sin, he goes back to the doctrine of election. And you know, Paul does the same thing. Think about how he begins Ephesians. This, this glorious litany of the surpassing grace of God, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. He chose you. He predestined you. He uses all these words. He's rooting, he's rooting them in the doctrine of their spirituality and the doctrine of election. And so the question is, okay, so if I'm, if I'm so safe and secure in the arms of Jesus, it doesn't matter what I do. Look, you've thought that, haven't you? And when sin is tempting you, what is sin tempting you to think? What is sin tempting you to think? It doesn't matter. You're saved by grace. Don't worry about it. Lean on grace. Jesus is bigger than your sin. Now, have I said things that are true and false in those two little sentences? Yes. What is the truth? Jesus is bigger than your sin. This is how Romans 5 is going to end. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Take the sum total of all your sin. Guess what there's greater of in this world? Grace for you. <laughs> now, it's a fatal conclusion to go, well, therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. And that's what sets up Romans 6, the doctrine of union with Christ. We'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there. But this is a question Christians begin to ask themselves. If Jesus has done this for me, why does it matter? Why do I have to be so meticulous about sin, righteousness, these kinds of things? Does God love me less when I sin? Have you wondered that? Have you wondered that? Come on, you've wondered that. This is the experience of a growing Christian. You, you blow it and you just think, oh, he doesn't love me anymore. Right? Rita? I used to struggle with um, feeling worthy of taking communion because I was feeling particularly well about my own sin. And um, it was so helpful for me. I don't remember what pastor it was, but he basically said, that is all the more reason. I don't know, I just, I kind of thought that way before. Wonderful. Uh, Spurgeon tells the story of serving communion at his church. This is, you know, England, late 1800s, and uh, I guess he was distributing the elements, and the lady was standing in front of him going, no, 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 I'm not worthy. And he goes, take it, woman, it's for sinners. (laughs) Good testimony, Rita. The table is for the weak, for sinners who are repentant. 
Um, so that's, if salvation is a grace, does it matter how I live? How about this one? Why do I still want to sin? Do growing Christians still want to sin? Sometimes. Not always. Sometimes. Have you faced this thing where you're like, I'm tempted to do this, and your right mind says, no, don't do that. And you do it anyway. Don't say that thing, Mike. Don't, this, like the Holy Spirit goes, don't say that, Mike. This is not the right thing to say. And you blurt it out. Why? What, what happened there? Paul's going to answer that question. Because he's going to tell you in Romans 6, First imperative in the book of Romans is consider. That's the first imperative. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Next imperative, two verses later, Romans 6.11. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. There it is. There's the fight. Don't let sin reign. And then he's going to tell you how to do that in Romans 8 by the power of the Spirit. So, yeah, spoiler alert, this is where the class is going. But I just want to show you these are the kinds of questions that growing Christians face. How do I overcome besetting patterns of sin? Paul's going to help us in Romans 8. How should I respond to the devil's condemnation? Thinking of this passages, what's one verse that comes to mind? The devil wants to condemn you. Does he have a lot to condemn you with? Yes, all your failures. He likes to get out the law and say, you bum, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you should have done this, you did this, you didn't do this. Okay, what's the best answer? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Satan starts knocking at your door to condemn you. You say, excuse me, you can take up all your condemnation with my Savior. Just send him to your Savior. Don't get into a peeing contest with the devil over your performance. Send him to Jesus. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. Rewind this. (laughs) There's power in the word of God. Why is it hard to pray and what can I do about it? Do you find it hard to pray sometimes? Paul's constantly telling people to pray. Why? Because he knows it's hard for them to pray. So we get help on prayer in Romans 8. Um, what is my relationship now to the law of God? Hmm. We find some denominational, big denominational differences on this one. Because Paul's going to say in Romans 6, I'm no longer under law but under grace. And that is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. We're going to unpack what he means by that. If I'm not under law, it doesn't matter what I do, right? I just grace, let grace be the definer. It's not quite so simple. Have you read Psalm 119 recently? He's infatuated with the law of God. It's his life. I'm crushed with longings to keep the law of God. Wow. And am I at fault for if, uh, am I at fault for Adam's sin when I had nothing to do with it? Is that on the surface of it a fair question? Right? We're all dead in sin because of one man's transgression. Here's a little diagram up here. We're all dead in sin. You were born in a condition you had no say in whatsoever. Is that fair? Well, that question is going to kind of come up in this study. Okay. Push pause. We're going to move on. Anything else you want to say about this? Just trying to tease out. Paul is writing Romans 5 to 8, as it were, cognizant of the fact this is the experience we have as growing Christians. The questions that arise. Anything else you'd like to say? Joe? Yeah, I, guess, I guess I've found that in my life, I, I, in over the long haul, not in the very 
short, because in the short you can kind of fear God and not know if you're saved, but out of kind of fear of punishment, you can do the right thing, or at least that way. I feel like over the long haul, if you're not convinced that God loves you, you'll just never have the energy and the strength to, to grow and transform in all the ways that we have to. It's just way overwhelming and way too much. And so I actually became convinced that being assured of salvation is one of the single most precious and important things that we have to have in our life. Wonderful. So is it any, if what Joe said is exactly right, is it any wonder how does Paul end this section? What is the end of Romans 8? There is nothing in heaven and earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's where he ends, exactly where Joe was saying. If you're not convinced God loves you, this is going to be a torturous journey. So hopefully you're in fellowship you're in personal study, you're in a church, you're, you're in preaching that tells you how much God loves you. Dory? I'd like to get a little testimony. I, it fits in somewhere here. <laughs> um, so we just returned from Australia and the funeral service for my uh, mother-in-law, who was 99. And the last three years or so, she had dementia. So the last time I, my wife had visited her, she didn't recognize my wife, but in her better days, we had written her order of service for her funeral and picked the hymns that she picked for almost, you know, that passage right, right there. And yet, you know, for the last couple of years, she was kind of fully out of it, you know. And there was just a testimony, and I appreciate the pastor there just talking about memory, faith, and dementia. Right on that, you know, cognitively we might not be there. You know, the others around us are supporting us, you know, kind of in that faith. And then what a testimony to my mother in law's faith that she had this beautiful service when she was, you know, like she could have participated in that. And then, you know, God, it just was a testimony to me that, you know, our salvation is God's hands, <laughs> not what, not what. Not what we do, you know, and this was especially important to me for the Bellhaven ministry where, you know, we're, we're, we're working with that. So I know it was in here somewhere. I just wanted to say what uh, a wonderful thing it was. And also, it was a, such a help to my wife and her sister that the service was all done. You know, you didn't have to put mom want this read at her service or something like that. She, you know, and uh, she had an old-time hymn that was no longer in the, her church's hymnal that they had updated, but they put it up on the board. But it was just a testimony to this, you know, the lasting faith, but also that her life was in God's hands, even when, you know, she was out of it. Yes. So. Great. And a good, good um, encouragement to us, who maybe are a little older, think about planning our worship services when we're full faculty. What hymns do you want? What scriptures do you want? That was sort of in your... Yeah. Yeah. But you think Romans 8, 28 to be read. Good. Wonderful. Thank you for that testimony. Frank? Um, one, of the, one of the things that really kind of transformed my thinking was um, when I really started to understand the covenant of redemption, uh, which just in, in a short description is before the world was formed, before anything, uh, the Trinity 
carrying acts of love. Mm -hmm. They're loving each other, and we're caught up in that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that um, I'm being given, we're being given as a gift from the Father to the Son as bride, mm -hmm. and the Son is loving his Father back because this, this is a gift, so he loves us because, not because of us, he loves us because we're a gift from his Father. And the Father is loving the Son by giving a bride to his Son. It's so wonderful when you think about that. It, 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 it pulls me out of the picture. Hmm. Um, when I begin to start understanding how they're loving each other through hmm. what's happening in, in, in reality, it's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. wonderful. So, then I, uh, I don't have to focus quite so much on the despair of my sin. Yeah. Um, when, I, when I focus more on him, when I look at him, <clears throat> I realize that, like the Marines call themselves, or their motto is Semper Fidelis, God is Semper Fidelis. Yeah. He's always faithful. And he will bring about what he has intended to do, and we're caught up in all of that. So that's just one. It's such a wonderful thought. Amen. Great. Covenant of redemption is in the heavenlies between the Trinity. It is worked out on earth through something we call the covenant of grace. Thank you. Great, great testimony. I think in the words of um, uh, Moses in Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, and we will rejoice and be glad all the day. So, when you leave the door, as it were, in the morning, your heart is going to be satisfied with one of two things. The love of God expressed in what Frank was just talking about, or the love of something else. And that love of something else will what? Destroy you, as it were. I'm not saying you, you can't lose your salvation. This is what the point Frank just made. You're so secure because Jesus will hold on to those for whom the Father has given him. The Spirit will make sure. He is the seal, the down payment. He'll make sure they're held on to. But functionally, there's something we love every day. Uh, Fabi, was that a hand up? Yes, and I think it's also assuring that it doesn't depend on me as well as it doesn't depend on other people that I love that is walking so far away from God. Mm. that they have to pull them out of the pit of hell. God, by the Holy Spirit, is the one that will actually bring the people I love, if that is his desire, yeah. out of the misery that they, they are in. And it will be his own time. And I think that assurance, when I, I was an adult, when I understood that there was nothing I could do, because I failed miserably anyways, it was God, and and he can do it all the way. So, just to confirm what um, Frank was saying, it's just, it is a truth. And, and, and it's hard sometimes you forget and you go on, on your own and you try to manipulate the situation and, mm -hmm. and do it your way. And, and God is so merciful and he lets you. And then, and he uses your mess and, and accomplish his will, regardless yeah. of you. It's like, he can have your, his way with you, and I'm so glad that he will. Yeah. Amen. Well, let's maybe finish as we look at the number three on the front page, the need for good doctrine. 
according to a Barna report, the following responded in the survey to the question, can a good person earn his way to heaven? Those responding agree strongly or somewhat agree break out this way. Uh, Assemblies of God, 22%, uh, non-denominational, 30 Baptist, 38 Presbyterian, not PCA. <laughs> I mean, heaven forbid that a PCA person would believe this. I was shocked with this. <laughs> well, you know, who knows who they asked. Lutheran, all adults, Episcopal. It's a disaster, isn't it? Now, the Mormon and Catholic thing, that makes sense to me, given what they teach, right? Um, but, so, do, there's just such a need for good doctrine. It's, this is just, Lord have mercy. And, you know, look, wouldn't that be us, but for the grace of God? Yeah. Twenty years ago, yeah. Um, just to set up next time, chapter where our study is on chapter five through eight, and the reason we're starting in five is because five one is a very distinct transition verse. Uh, read it for us, Frank. It's there at the top of the second page. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Thank you. We'll look at that verse in more detail, but notice what's the first word in the sentence. Therefore, whenever you see therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. So Paul is, is, he is summarizing the first four chapters. And he's beginning to make a transition. And he's going to start to get practical. I haven't done any really practical stuff in the first, you know, first four chapters. And we'll go over, there's an outline in the, on, in the next page, of outline of Romans and all that kind of stuff. So, don't worry about that. I just want to let you know that in order to get to chapter 5, verse 1, I want us to step back and look at the life of Paul, the author. Because when you, if you have a study Bible and you come to Romans, it'll go date, occasion, author, all that kind of stuff. So I think we have some things to learn about Paul, the person, before we learn about Paul, the author. Okay, so that's what we're going to do next time. If you want to read ahead, you see the conversion, um, you've got the conversion, Paul's conversion in Acts 9, and then three other times he, re- he relates the story of conversion. We're not going to look at all of those. The one we will look at is Acts 26, 1 to 23, because it encapsulates enough of the points that he's making in all those other testimonies. So that's what we're going to start next time. Final comments or questions? Tomorrow morning, what's my number one goal? Satisfy me with the love of God. I'll be rejoicing and glad all my day. All in Christ. Let's, let me pray for you all. Lord, thank you for this well-studied, well-educated group of believers. Thank you for uh, the way they have persevered in their own um, sanctification, worship, learning, and going in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege to look at your word together. Would you keep them, care for them, Let us stand in awe of you. Let us be assured there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, it's it's probably pretty sure that because of wanting to be a part of the study, the devil is going to work in a very um, secretive, uh, uh, subtle way to discourage us. But in the gospel, there's ultimately no, no reason for discouragement, even in the face of our failures and our sin and sloth. We're loved. And so help us live in that place, looking to you. And as 
Frank was saying, get our eyes off ourselves onto you, and we will experience that glorious change you've ordained for us. So thank you for my brothers and sisters. Do encourage them. Fill them with hope, life, peace, joy, goodness, hunger. Satisfy them with your love even in this next hour. We will rejoice and be glad in you. In Jesus' name, amen.